welcome to Back to the Vax. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Wilson, who is a PhD in, I want to say molecular biology. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Oh, yes. It got right. (laughs) I have to like (laughs) memorize so many people's specialties. (laughs) So I saw you a while ago on uh, Debunk the Funk. I did watch a few of your videos in the beginning when you were first kind of starting YouTube. When did you start your YouTube channel? <laughs> yeah, that was that was a while ago before I before I had an afro. Um, I started my YouTube channel during the last year of my PhD, which um, was 2020. And my first video, I think, I uploaded conveniently in January of 2020. Um, so little did I know that only a couple months later, um, COVID would explode across the world and we'd be in lockdown. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been doing it since 2020. Um, and it's just been a really fun thing for me to do, to exercise some science communication that I otherwise wouldn't be able to do in my job or anything else. You're a very effective communicator. I, I like, you have like this very soft spoken calm demeanor that I have no issue like focusing on. Like sometimes when people deliver science information, it can be like, I know a lot of people talk fast or they like to assume like everyone knows what they know or, Mm. and I like how you break things down for even like lay people and, and make it so that's easy to understand or even, you know, the way you present certain dichotomies um, and I was watching your Dr. Campbell review before we started talking. I, I watched the second one, like the most recent one earlier mm-hmm. this morning, but I watched the other one from before. And I noticed the same thing. Like I, when the pandemic first happened, I was watching Dr. Campbell, like a, a weather forecast mm-hmm. because he was, he was like watching how many cases were happening all over the world and like how, how COVID was spreading. He was very good at like communicating like the spread around the world at a time where we didn't know where this was going or how it was going to end up. Right. And, um, and then, yeah, he started with the ivermectin and he didn't want to drop it and then got super popular with that crowd. And it's clear, like he is pandering to them now and has lost Oh, my my husband says, if you don't die a hero, you live to see yourself become the villain. How <laughs> kind yeah. he said about it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of true. It yeah, it, he's a really interesting case. I mean, I um, I didn't really watch him uh, at all in the like first year of the pandemic. It was only when some people messaged me. Um, around the time he started talking about vitamin D and COVID um, with his videos and saying like, Hey, is this guy talking sense? Are you going to debunk him? And I'd listen to like 10 minutes and I'd, you know, he talked about vitamin D and how maybe it's helpful. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's fine, I guess. Um, I don't really have any problems with him. So no, I don't plan on debunking him. But then as as you said ivermectin thing came around 
and it, something happened to him and now yeah. it's like he's a and different and then he started person. making money and it's very strange yeah, oh yeah he <laughs> he mm-hmm. he started making a lot more money um <clears throat> but you know i can only speculate on what's going on with him but to me it just seems like he's this retired nurse who spent all this time over a decade making educational videos and then suddenly he has this huge audience Mm-hmm. And it feels like all that work like led up to something and he doesn't want to let it go. I don't know. But it, his videos now are just bizarre. They're just bizarre. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I really, um, it's, it's really a cautionary tale, I think. Um, and I worry about this for myself. Like, I'm not saying I'm as huge as him. I'm definitely not. I'm, I mean, Heather and I are pretty small potatoes. But I always worry, like, could that happen to me? You know, as far as like, if you do get really popular and I always think it's funny because people think I'm getting all this money from big pharma or, you know, like on our website, because Heather and I have been invited to do a few webinars here and there. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we get compensated. Sometimes we don't, but I assure you, it's not $4 million. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and people will bring that up like, oh, you're just a paid shill. And I'm like, your guys are making like literal millions of dollars. Like I am not making like I'll buy a textbook sometimes with the money I get. Like, it's not like this is how I make a living. Like I definitely don't make enough to make a living from anything that I've, you know, been offered to do or whatever. It's usually a couple hundred dollars max, you know, like if anything. Yeah. But yeah, they'll bring that up and throw that in my face and call me a pharma shill. And I'm like, oh, I make so much money. Yeah. Oh, that, that I mean, same. <laughs> I get that yeah, all the, and I'm that's sure their you go-to. get that too. That's their go-to. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, my my job, my day job uh, that I got straight out of graduate school is working in biotech for a pharma company called Eurofins. But... I don't get paid super well there and they have nothing to do with my videos. And I started my videos before I started working there. And to me, I just see it as I'm working in the field. I'm learning more things about biotech biology and how the industry side is run. Cause I spent so long in academia. It's interesting to see a, a new side, but a lot of people like to say, Oh, you're just making fun, making money for big pharma and, you're a shill for Eurofins. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, I could quit anytime I want and, you know, find a new job in this area. There's a ton of, ton of companies. So, yeah. and, and my I, videos, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm a small potato too, I think. And, uh, they, I don't make much money at all <laughs> from my yeah. videos. So it's certainly not worth the, the hours I put into them. Uh, I don't make much money. So, but yeah, I, I do worry about that too. You know, um, could that happen to me? Could what happened to John Campbell happen to me as well? And I think we just have to do our best to see what not to do and sur- keep surrounding ourselves with colleagues and have them keep us honest. Yeah, that's true. And And not being afraid of correction. I mean, that is one thing I learned from my journey is to lean into the discomfort of being wrong. Like it's yes. okay to be wrong. And even, you know, occasionally 
you know, since then I'll be wrong about something. And I, I just try, I just get out, like, you just have to get over it and just be like, yeah, okay, I'm wrong. And now I can be corrected. Like mm-hmm. it's way easier than to dig your heels in. Of course, you know, if you're being incentivized to dig your heels in, it makes it a lot harder. And, and that's the problem if you don't have colleagues keeping you honest. Right. You know? Right. Or just like stay in touch with reality. I mean, yeah. I we've been wrong so many times during this pandemic. I mean, I I was convinced when it started that it was going to be another SARS one, uh, another coronavirus that leaps into humans and isn't great at transmitting, and so it fizzles out. Um, and so, and I remember in like February, even early March, we were talking in my lab like. Oh, are they going to shut down the university? And I'm like, no, no way. Yeah. And you know, my channel reflected that I wasn't making many videos about coronavirus. I was still making videos about <laughs> Dell big tree and <laughs> those idiots. Yeah. But, um, th- then everything changed. I was wrong and been wrong about several other things. I honestly didn't think that MRNA vaccines were going to be, uh, super promising. I thought like, Oh, well, uh, I don't know, but I, I didn't know any of the literature behind them. So I learned and learned why I was wrong. So, yeah, I mean, you just have to change with, uh, what you learn. Yeah. Um, back to the whole pharma thing. I actually also worked for a pharma company. Um, and I used to be a quality control chemist. So I got to mm-hmm. see that side of things, you know, cause it was a manufacturing plant and got to work with a lot of um, good manufacturing practices, good lab, uh, GLP, good, I can't remember. It's been over a decade, like well over yeah, a Yeah, GLP, GMP. All that stuff, All that right? stuff, yeah. And how like tightly regulated everything is. And, and I like to joke about, you know, the lab I worked in and, and like you – cannot fart in there without documenting it like you oh my God. cannot yeah. use scrap paper everything is kept your little scrap yeah. calculations have to be stapled to the official documents like you cannot throw anything in the trash you get surprise audited yeah, uh, yep. you know one time I think we were surprise audited like twice three times in one year and you have to be ready you know like <laughs> at any moment because your whole lab your whole manufacturing plant can get shut down and yeah, you have you to go through it like it's all documents are kept on site i think for five years and then yep. they're moved to a warehouse they're not even destroyed at that point so like this idea that we're secretly doing things in these labs like i don't know where they when we could put microchips in a vaccine i mean we did biologic <laughs> therapies we did all ago like when are we gonna have the time or who's gonna because you you tell everything like um, I caught uh, one of my coworkers who just graduated, uh, you know, school. He was uh, caught doing like we have this test that always comes out negative and he was mm-hmm. caught just writing negative and mm-hmm. he was he, he was reported right away and fired yeah. and blacklisted yeah. like he'll never get a job in that kind of field again. Like you cannot lie about your data like that is like a big no-no in science like i yeah, yeah like people yeah, do not understand how it works and that, and i that goes for like even talking about like the people that work for the cdc or 
like they like to make up this big villain you know he's yeah he's, it's not it's like a caricature that they've built up and like if right. you actually talk to these people they're real people mm-hmm. you know i interviewed yeah. kevin alt who's got a, a position on the board of the oh. cdc mm-hmm. um and he's a regular dude who likes basketball and has two daughters that he's putting through college and yeah and you know as an OBGYN saw the toll that HPV had on, on healthcare and on women. So mm-hmm. like, he's just a regular guy. He's not some evil guy that's trying to like depopulate, <laughs> um, you know, the world with the HPV vaccine, like some anti-vaxxers think. And, right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's really, it's really, it, it would take a huge, huge conspiracy to do the kinds of things that anti-vaxxers yeah. say happen because as you say everything is very meticulously documented and it's 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 annoying <laughs> yeah to, it's to the point where it's annoying it's like come on i need to document this really but <clears throat> it's like no you, you got you got to do it the fda requires it like, and it oh. keeps people honest like you really would have to go out of your way to lie like you may as well just do the work yeah yeah. At and, that point, you know, if you're going to manufacture all this fake documentation, like you may as well just do the work involved. Like yeah. it's not any shorter. Right. And um, a lot of the assays I do, it's uh, the documentation is all electronic and the data is documented electronically. So I couldn't, I couldn't fake something even if I tried, because it would be super obvious to any reviewer looking at it. Um, yeah that that it's fake um and that's the other thing is that there are reviewers to your data there are usually multiple analysts performing the same assays on different sites that all get sent to reviewers or senior scientists or whoever's writing the report that that data is going to go into and all the data have to agree with each other and if they don't then they come back and they're like hey this sample is different from like the samples results were different from this site and this site. Um, Why? What, ha- what happened? Was yeah. it an analyst issue? Was it a reagent issue? Or is, or is there some variation we don't understand? And, and they have to figure that out. So. Um, yeah, we would, there were certain tests that like three of a, three different lab techs would have to do and they would have to um, see, I'm forgetting all the stats terms now, but like they'd have to be within a certain repeatability, right? Like, um, yeah, uh, an acceptable range. Yeah, um, uh, within each like other, that. and if it wasn't, then you'd have to like do it all over again. Mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. it's still, if if it, you you'd have to retrain people if yes. the lab techs couldn't get the results within a certain percentage of each other. Right, right. Yeah, there's there's acceptance criteria for all the all the results and. Yeah, if if a if a product is in the the GMP phase, the good manufacturing processes mm-hmm. uh, yeah. phase, then yeah, if assays are failing, then they have to open a quality investigation and retrain people. And I do reaction monitoring, and mm-hmm. if if my result uh, came in like uh, there is too much of this one side reaction occurring, or um, it wasn't like a high enough assay, then they would have to scrap the whole batch 
And sometimes those batches were like worth a million dollars. And I had to be certain enough of what I was saying. And I was, I, I was such a uh, confident lab tech. <laughs> I was never doubtful of myself back then. But yeah. And um, yeah, you have to be confident enough. And, and they're throwing out this much product because it didn't meet the, the standard, the quality control standard. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's super meticulous and, and you're right. It's, it's run by people and uh, like, yeah, Ke- Kevin Alt's a normal guy and I'm just a, a person. I'm a normal scientist, nothing special. I did very average in my PhD. I have a very, um, like a very entry level job <laughs> in pharma and, yeah. and I, I just go to work every day. I, come home I take care of my daughter with my wife and um a few nights a week after my daughter goes to bed I try to make videos because you know I'm just really if I could do science communication as a job I'd do it but you know we we have to feed our daughter so yeah, yeah. But, but it's something I'm passionate about so I, I do it um and uh yeah <laughs> It's important, I think, now more than ever. And that's what I tell people. Like, like, I get asked, like, why do what you do? And it's because this problem isn't going away. It's actually going to get worse. Yeah. Because yeah. you can extrapolate everything they say about COVID vaccines to any vaccine. And mm-hmm. when people start doing that, you're going to have way more people foregoing routine vaccination. Right. Which is going to cause huge problems. And it already is. Yeah. I mean, I remember in graduate school, I, I talked to a woman who I wanted to do some science communication work with. And uh, I, I told her that I was passionate about um, vaccine misinformation. And she said, well, I think, you know, our vaccination rates are pretty good. And uh, that was, we, we were in Pittsburgh and um, yeah, it's true. Most, most vaccines for childhood vaccinations were in like above 95% range. And I was like, but I still think it's important. I don't think they're a fringe group because, you know, usually these fringe groups turn into, um, you know, larger and larger groups until you have people in Congress making laws who believe them. And, you know, that's, that's what we have today. Um, so I, I think there, there needs to be a, a constant effort by scientists to like, not only debunk misinformation, but try to pre-bunk it. Like have Yeah. The, like I got Heather and I call it um, uh, immunizing against misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you, you have to tell parents before they hear the myth, what the actual fact is. So they're immunized against that myth mm-hmm. because if they don't know, it sounds plausible. Right. Yeah. And that's, but that's harder to do. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to predict what people are going to misinterpret and misunderstand and make sure you explain it in a clear way. Um, and that's, you know, looking at the pandemic, I, I can, say that messaging was poor from public health officials on certain things. But at the same time, it's not like I was sitting there 
during that time saying like, this is how we need to communicate this. Cause I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know that when people, when the CDC started calling, um, cases of COVID and vaccinated individuals breakthrough cases that that would lead to a complete misunderstanding of what vaccines are supposed to do. Or uh, calling the outside protein, a spike protein and how people ran with that and picture like, I'm sure in their mind, like literal spikes, <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's what it seems it's like. So- right. Yeah. It sounds scary. For sure. <laughs> For I joke about know. like, they should have just called them stud proteins and then like men would have lined up. Oh my God. To get the vaccine. Oh, that would be, that would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. Yeah. Uh, see, yeah. It's, it's, scientists just don't. They don't think it, about the marketing. <laughs> they don't. And it, and it's hard to, I mean, I, I mean, I can say like in my, in my graduate like, program, you know, a PhD program is supposed to train you to be a scientist, but there are so many different parts of being a scientist that are so important. And I think communication is one of the most important, but most programs don't build communication into their curriculum for their PhD students. Most PhD students just like, you know, uh, they'll, they'll give talks to their departments uh, they usually give at least one talk at a conference during their during their time as a PhD student, and maybe their lab will, like, you know, help them prepare their talk or give practice talks and give feedback and stuff. But generally, after they give their talk, there's probably only going to be like maybe five people in the audience who are super interested in it, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who are going to ask questions and be like, "Oh, great talk." Meanwhile, the rest of the room has no clue, like what the point of your talk was. And they're your Mm -hmm. colleagues and you can't communicate properly to them. How are you going to communicate properly to the general public? Um, and, and so that that's kind of a little glimpse into, you know, just how much training, how much emphasis, uh, I think you can expect out of, um, a PhD program. Most students have to take it on themselves to um, enhance their communication skills. Yeah. It's, it's not easy because usually, you know, people who are good at a specific, sorry, specifically um, public communication are not necessarily scientists and people who have a passion for science aren't necessarily into the whole public speaking aspect of it. So it's, it's definitely a hard gap to bridge. Um, Heather and I are, are trying, we, we got some um, grant funding to write um, from the position of a former, formerly hesitant parent um, Mm -hmm. about the different tropes people may hear about and how we fell for them and, and how we were actually wrong about them. And the goal is to have like tear off sheets in public health offices and doctor's offices that doctors can just hand out and address specific concerns without adding more concerns. Cause you don't wanna, you don't wanna, I don't wanna plant seeds either in case it backfires. So it would be like 
a very specific trope that they heard about and then they would get like an answer as to why that's wrong but also from the point of us being formally hesitant and being parents yeah yeah that would be cool yeah we're hoping it it helps and and we were really excited when they offered us to do this writing contract so we'll see how it goes i'm I'm excited i've already wrote written a few um articles already on it but yeah now what is the craziest thing the craziest trope you've heard so far about covid vaccines oh about covid vaccines top three Um, (laughs) there's a lot of them top three um the ones that immediately come to mind um are that they contain graphene oxide they they definitely don't um i don't even know how that you know how people come up yeah isn't it black graphene is black isn't it isn't it like a black study so i i've heard from okay so these are these are the words of a um a material scientist on that whole nonsense um he says graphene oxide is distinct from graphene liquids containing it in any significant amount also tend to be dark brown or black those vials on the right and he shows a picture of some some vials that are supposed to contain clear liquid that contain 0.05 percent graphene oxide by weight and they're super dark <laughs> i mean they're brown yeah. I, it looks like brown water um, yeah and the vials of pfizer vaccine are generally colorless maybe a little pale yellow um so if there's graphene oxide in them um which there's not, then, you know, we would be able to tell just by looking at it. And isn't, or am I thinking of something else, but isn't graphene pretty inert anyway? I are they don't. thinking like it's nanobots or something? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know that graphene oxide is like the subject of lots of material science experiments. I don't actually know much about it. I know it has some interesting properties, but I don't know what, what what the heck people think it would be doing in a vaccine if if you got it injected into you i i can't imagine it would be harmful remember that doctor sharing pictures of bubbles and calling them nanobots oh god yes Uh, under under like a light microscope yeah Yeah. i'm like that's a bubble and then they they found a piece of cotton lint and i like searched up images of lint under a microscope and she was calling it like a parasite i was like that's yeah. a piece of lint yeah. like here's some pictures of lint that is lint yeah like how do you call yourself a doctor did it's you just, not look into it first it's just like the laziest analysis you can do of a sample like we've obtained yeah. a covid vaccine sample and we're gonna look at it under a light microscope okay yeah. well if you were if you actually got an unknown liquid and you wanted to determine what it was, you would do some chemistry or maybe some spectra NMR. analyses. Yeah. yeah. NMR or any, any other like, you know, mass spec uh, analyses. Yeah. Um, or maybe you would do some basic biology experiments, see what biomaterials are there. I mean, there's so many things you could do if you got your hands on a, yeah. a, on a liquid and you wanted to like prove to the world what was in it. Uh, but looking at it under the light, light microscope is like, 
you know, imagine what they'd say <laughs> if they, they saw it crystallize too. Like some of the salts started like coming out of solution from mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the heat, and they're like, "Those are the spike proteins." Like, <laughs> it's like no, those are uh, yeah. cholesterol salts. <laughs> I remember yeah. I made I made a video on that one. That was that was fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the whole vaccine contents thing is probably one of the wackier ones. Um, um, I think the two others I'd pick are that the claims that it integrates into your DNA or changes your DNA yeah, and that. that it, and that it causes uh vaccine AIDS. Uh, those two, those two are just like wild. Those people like, are so annoying. The AIDS people, like they oh think they're God. so clever. I know. I, like, they what? say the maids thing. I'm like, oh. Like, do you do you really think that we wouldn't notice if yeah. vaccines were literally giving people AIDS? I mean, it was very clear when HIV was causing AIDS in America. The vaccine AIDS and the um, uh, changing your DNA ones. Those yeah. are those are always they're just wacky and they're they're annoying. Um, yeah, like off the top of my head, that's what I was talking about. Um, let's say the myocarditis we found in young men. I cannot remember the rate, but we found it. Like it was detected pretty much like how long was the vaccine out? A month? I think, Two I months? Think a, a couple months maybe before it was yeah. clear that it was actually the vaccines causing it and not like some So like if we can find that out, surely we can figure out if it's causing AIDS yeah, and, and people are literally, I mean, okay, AIDS is literally like a destruction of your immune system. So if vaccines were giving people AIDS, then vaccines would not have any efficacy against preventing any outcomes from COVID-19. It would actually make things worse, but it's the complete opposite of that. I mean, consistently we see vaccines are obviously protecting people against severe disease like in america pretty much the only people getting hospitalized and dying of covid in severe cases are unvaccinated people um here too uh, my mother-in-law is actually she's one of the nurses that was following up um covid cases in our province mm-hmm. and she, she says the same thing like it is unvaccinated people and it is unreal how some of these people you know their families they will watch family members die and Mm -hmm. still refuse to get vaccinated like yeah and so she's she's seen a few cases where like you know three four family members died of covid when when delta was a really bad uh, variant and 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 it's it's crazy how pervasive the misinformation is that you can watch a family member die and go well, that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, they were just weak or, you know, whatever they tell themselves. I don't know. And yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to me how that. It is. Yeah. We, happens. I was, I have our, our, uh, good friends. Um, one of them lost a, a sibling to, to COVID during, um, I think it was last winter. Um, and, you know, that sibling was in their 30s, healthy, unvaccinated. And 
you know, it's I didn't know, I, I don't know, I don't know the reasons. I don't know the reasons why that person was unvaccinated, but it doesn't change how, you know, yeah, it didn't, it didn't change their loss or how tragic it was. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it just like, I'm pretty sure like men, and it's okay to be pretty sure that you'd be okay. But at the same time, like it's still a crappy lottery to play. Yeah. And, why take the risk? Yeah. And to me, you know, what really bothered me about COVID when I was like nine months pregnant with my last kid, mm-hmm. I ended up with a, it, in my last trimester, I ended up with this horrible cold where I completely lost my sense of taste and smell Uh-oh. for like eight weeks. And I wasn't wow. sure it was going to come back. It was, and I, it wasn't cause I was congested. I was like over the cold and I still had no sense of taste or smell. And I was terrified, like food tasted like paste and I had to like oh, force no. myself to eat. It was, and being pregnant, you have to eat. You can't yeah. avoid it. And it was brutal. I hated it. And when I found out COVID did that, I was like, no, no, oh, I no. do not want COVID. It was the worst, like knowing that how depressing it is when you eat or drink and it tastes like nothing, like yeah. wallpaper paste pretty much. Like it's, it's horrible. Like at, at first it sounds kind of funny, but it's actually not funny. It's probably no. as far as long-term things go, like on par with a lot of long COVID symptoms. It's, it destroys holidays. It destroys your mental health. Like it is yeah, nothing Food. I ever want to deal with. Food is like, you know, half the things that give me joy in this world anymore. So, but, but I mean, having no taste or smell at nine months pregnant, I mean, that's when when you're already like at the end and it's just, it's, it's miserable and you're just like, get this baby out of me. It's just like, that would be terrible. Yeah. My, my, (laughs) and my youngest was underweight. He, he was full term. He's only five pounds. So oh, wow. I think it did affect um, the end of my pregnancy quite a bit. And, mm. uh, yeah. I just yeah, remember thinking, that... what if I can't smell his, his beautiful newborn head? Like that oh. really <laughs> bothered me. Cause like, I know what that's about it. He was my third kid. And I was like, that's the best mm-hmm. part of having, you know, babies is you smell the top of their head and their stinky little feet. Yeah. Yep. And um, yeah. So yeah. And, luckily and... it came back and, never want to go through that again that's that's good that everything turned out okay and that concludes part one uh dr wilson and i ended up talking for like almost two hours so i had to split the episode into two parts but i will post both parts so you can find the next one if you want or stop there whatever anyway have a great day